And so his gamble made my gamble possible. So I then thought, right, well, we've got, everybody says it's an excellent export in training. We should go for manned missions. And privately, I pressed strongly on Jean-Jacques that I really wanted in return for helping him out, a mission for Tim Peake. It's about demonstrating that the use of space assets have wide-ranging and far-reaching applications on Earth. Hi, I'm Kim. And I'm Murray. And this is the Great British Liftoff. How are you doing, Kim? I am thrilled because we've got some really big hitters on this episode. We have. We have. It's incredibly exciting no less than Lord David Willits, who I think we, we really wanted to bring on to this episode as somebody who is perhaps fair to say the architect of the UK's role in space. So everything from setting up a UK space agency right through to having the vision to put somebody from the UK in orbit in space. So what a fantastic privilege to speak to somebody who's had that vision and then driven it forwards. I know. He had a great story. I loved speaking to him. And we had actually already spoken to him as part of our Let's Talk Space event where we spoke to the space station. So he really enjoys what he does and he's very passionate about space and he's very keen to learn. And he mentions all the people that have educated him along the way, including Sir Martin Sweeting, who's going to be on a future podcast episode, we're thrilled to say. But no, David's a really interesting guy to speak to if you're wondering how the UK even managed to get a space industry in the first place. That's why it's so important to understand what's going on at, at all levels. We've worked on Edinburgh Space Data Capital, speaking to the people who are developing those algorithms, right through to people who have developed the architecture for the UK space economy. And it's really that depth and breadth we've developed over these three series I find uh, so so exciting and uh, to speak to David it's just so encouraging to hear well, somebody of that capacity uh, and that level of achievement still retains that incredible enthusiasm for this subject area and it, it makes me think we've got a very very bright future indeed in space. We do. And as you'll hear, he took a gamble and he wasn't the only one who took a gamble. Sir Tim Peake also took a gamble. Is he sir or is he Captain Tim Peake? Did they give him a knighthood? I think think he's a major. He's a major. Dash it all. (laughs) Have you you not done your research, Kim? For once, no, actually. I should probably (laughs) check that. I'll I'll take your word for it, Major Tim Peake. Um, They both took a gamble and they both paid off it's a great story so without further ado let's go to lord david willits and the first thing i asked him was how he became involved in the space sector in the first place yeah well i first got interested in space back when i was in the shadow cabinet and shadowed what was then called dti for a time shadowed other departments which had responsibility for space And several people in the space community reached out to me then and briefed me when I was Shadow Secretary of State on the importance of space. So when I arrived in government in in 2010, I already had a a kind of sense that that this was a key area that was moving forward. And I arrived with the classic decision you always have if you are the opposition shadow who arrives in the in the department, which was in my area, of course, Vince Cable was the Secretary of State, and I had a large amount of autonomy in the areas of science, universities, space, and a member of the cabinet. So the question was, do we tear up everything we've inherited from the last government, or do we work more incrementally on what they'd already done? 
And, and I was fortunate, we had, we had in um, Lord Drayson, a labor minister who'd been very interested in space and had worked on a sort of growth plan for space. I sometimes tease him by saying that it, the growth plan involves so much public spending for which there was, as far as I could tell, there was no treasury commitment that he clearly hadn't expected he would win the election. And so he left that in my <laughs> intro. But at least there was a kind of plan. And they just set up a space leadership council, co-chaired with um, Andy Green, who was a very effective advocate of space. And, and early on, I, I took the decision, there is a plan here. It may not be perfect, but at least people have worked hard on it. And we've also got an entity, the Space Leadership Council. The best thing is to carry on and try to deliver that and accelerate it rather than waste 18 months tearing it up and starting from scratch. It was a good opportunity to build on something from the previous government, but carrying it forward, I hope, with some energy and increasing with funding. And did you find that you had a lot of education to do when you were looking for that funding or did people grasp it? Well, there are several, across science and technology, there is a, there is a problem, which is because of the English education system uh, and people at the age of 16 specialising so much, you can be dealing with a lot of important policymakers, civil servants, politicians, who stopped doing science and technology at the age of 16 and think it's all rather scary. And look, I stopped doing science and technology at the age of 16. I'm fully aware I'm an example of this problem. But the science community were incredibly good to me in putting time and effort into educating me. And, and I found, oddly enough, the fact I was a lay person meant that when I was then explaining space stuff to my colleagues, sometimes I could communicate it to them in a way that the experts sometimes found difficult. So, yeah, I, I got stuck in and gradually got my head around the subject educated by the people on the Space Leadership Council, the people in the research community, you know, thought leaders from the business side, people like Sir Martin Sweeting. So yeah, I, I got stuck in and they were very good. They made an effort to educate me and I could gradually develop a sense of what our comparative advantage was and what our strategy could really be. And what was the situation in 2010? Because things have changed massively in the last 11 years. So what was the situation then? There were pros and cons. First of all, we didn't have, remember, the UK Space Agency didn't exist. There had been an earlier attempt to create a space agency which hadn't worked. So we didn't have any, we didn't have a proper core legal entity like that with the, with the powers that the UK Space Agency had. And paradoxically, that was, a, that was an advantage and a disadvantage. One of the advantages was that as we had not had for decades a great big monolithic state technology entity like the French agency or the German agency, our sector was much more determined and shaped by the private sector and you could argue more agile, more commercially minded. So I never wanted the UK Space Agency, which then became a legal entity in 2011, to sort of become a great big monolith running its own internal technology programs and things like that. So we had the advantage probably a relatively strong private sector a relatively small public sector, we'd taken some peculiar and inhibiting decisions like we would never pay for any British astronauts to go on any official missions. We were against manned flight. Helen Sharman, of course, had, had been an astronaut, but in a sort of privately sponsored way. And there were those which had just become policy assumptions in a very small number of people who actually worked on space policy. So 
Um, you could challenge that. And of course, I changed that and we got the flight for Tim Peak. And there were some really exciting areas where the UK had a technology lead, and one of them being small satellites. And again, paradoxically, because we hadn't got our own fantastic launch capability, we were always, to launch any British satellite, you were always basically having to catch a lift on someone else's rocket. And these were pretty expensive if you had a big, heavy satellite, which would give us an incentive to try to lower the weight and lower the size of our satellites. So we had organizations, companies like Surrey Satellites and others, Clyde Space, as it then was, that were really strong in small satellite technologies. So Britain had some distinctive comparative advantages. It had a great research community. Uh, it had some very entrepreneurial businesses. Uh, it was, uh, had a very large private sector relative to a sort of state sector. And then it just needed more funding, a stronger push, uh, a more favorable regime. And that's what working with the community I tried to deliver. Wonderful. And I love the way you just casually said, and we changed it so that Tim could go to the space station. <laughs> Let's tell that story. Well, the paradox, because space was then seen as rather esoteric, and it's much less like that, because it was seen as rather left field and odd, I also had the advantage of incredible levels of autonomy to get on with. <laughs> Just um, stay under the radar. <laughs> and and the, the crucial, you know, Vince was, was focused on other things. And my crucial ally was George Osborne. And the main, the, um, uh, and I know, and I, you know, I'm not proud. I realise uh, you could argue the most important single part of the science minister job is to get on with the chancellor and ensure that science is properly funded. And uh, George had seen more widely the value of science. After one point, it looked like we we're going to have a terrible cut in the science budget in the public expenditure negotiations of 2010. Um, I managed to get that change to a to flat cash, which wasn't perfect, but jolly sight better than might have happened. And George, I found, was could see that there was real potential here. And the 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 negotiate early on, we put some extra money into some key technologies. And I can remember as we went to the ESA ministerial of 2012, pitching to the Treasury that this was an opportunity for the UK that we could take um, and persuading them that we should go with an, uh, proposing a significant increase in the UK's ESA contribution, but with an incredibly flexible negotiating mandate about what I did within the agreed framework. And it so happened at that ESA ministerial that you know things had gone well. I'd got, I'd got a, a sort of contingency reserve to deploy and it was a complicated story, but essentially there'd been on the first day a massive Franco-German bust-up. <laughs> Unusual. <laughs> well, there were tensions between them. I mean, it's partly about the future of Ariana, where the French and the Germans had different views about Ariana 6 and everything. And the, 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 East, the, the, the numbers were not quite adding up for the, in the ESA ministerial. And I got on very well with Jean-Jacques Dordain, the head of ESA. And... Um, Essentially, he needed, if, if, we, if I deployed my budgetary flexibility in a way to help him get some programs funded, that would unblock the negotiations on the second day. And 
So I can still remember the breakfast conversation I had with him that morning, which included, I thought, it was an opportunity, Britain paying to join the man flight programme of ESA, which had steadfastly been out of for 20 years. Um, I just thought this made sense. We should get on with it. And I was able to do so with such a modest contribution to the cost. It was, um, it was, a, uh, it was a bargain, but it helped him. It helped move the conference forward. And of course, heroically, Tim Peake, to his massive credit, Tim had already been on the training program for an astronaut. He was already well regarded as a trainee astronaut, but he'd entered the program knowing that at the time, British government policy was such that there was no chance of the British government ever, ever funding that ESA program. So his chances of actually flying were very low, but he nevertheless made the gamble. And so his gamble made my gamble possible. So I then thought, right, well, we've got, a, everybody says he's an excellent expert in training. We should go for manned missions. And privately, I pressed strongly on Jean-Jacques that I really wanted in return for helping him out a mission for Tim Peake. And of course, ultimately, these things depend on merit. Tim had to have gone through all the training with Flying Colours, which he did. Uh, but that was part of the understanding we reached over that breakfast. Uh, and I have to say, you know, it was, we didn't quite know how having going into manned missions would play out. I hoped it would boost public interest in space and having a, a British astronaut on the space station would, would promote interest. I never expected it to take off and as much as it did. And it was just marvelous to see. And it, it, it has paid off a hundredfold with the, the way in which Tim has been such a fantastic communicator for space. And Britain has become more confident seeing that we can, we can send an astronaut up the space station. That's a wonderful story. I can just imagine you over your, your fried eggs and your cup of coffee <laughs> having a conversation about sending Tim up to the space station. I love it. This, 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 was, in, this was in Naples. There weren't any fried eggs. Oh. <laughs> Some lovely um, continental cheeses, perhaps. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, when anyone speaks to us about space, it's astronauts they think of first and foremost. It's astronauts, it's visiting the moon, it's are we going to get to Mars? which is wonderful because that's what inspires people. It's what people get, get excited about. But as you and I both know, there's so much more to it than that. And do you feel like people are beginning to understand that UK space is about so much more than just astronauts? I think so. I, uh, and of course, I mean, again, we have some distinctive advantages. And one is that when it comes to small satellites, usually launched into a polar orbit, instead of having the sort of the equatorial launch arrangement for a great big um, heavy rocket to launch satellites out into a distant orbit, you, you're very, the north of Scotland suddenly becomes a great launch location where you can, you've got the right angles for launching them out over the pole, you've got ocean uh, ahead of you. So there's a strategic opportunity for us in small satellites and the launch infrastructure around them. And obviously, I'm, I'm now on the board of Surrey Satellites. I'm a great believer in what Surrey Satellites does. I'm also an advisor to Skyrora, which is a, a very flexible new Scottish-based launch capability. So I saw, I thought, uh, you know, Britain has got, I do think Britain has got an, a potential advantage in Leo constellations. It, it was why I was one of the first advocates of the UK taking a stake in OneWeb in order to rescue it. Um, it, had all, it was already legally a UK headquartered company, but now with the British government's stake, it's got the opportunity really to be a properly British-based company with the next generation of satellites, the commissioning of those really creating and strengthening a UK supply chain. 
So we can, I can, one of my last speeches as, as minister back in 2014 was about how I wanted to see a full UK space capacity with our own launch, uh, our own launch area, probably in the north of Scotland, um, manufacturing the sort of the, the lighter weight, more nimble rockets that you would need to go with small satellites, getting involved in the development of LEO constellations. And that is now all an area where the UK is doing a lot. It's incredibly exciting. It is. It's so exciting, particularly for the Scottish community, you know, to have this wonderful label of making more small satellites than anywhere outside California, although I'm not sure that that's still the case. I think there's other countries catching up with us, but it really inspires people. And that's such an important part of this, given the, the wider STEM agenda, isn't it, is, is trying to get people excited and to see the potential for careers in this area. They say that what interests kids in science initially is either dinosaurs or space. Yeah. Um, and, and at the time, the, the president of the Royal Society, uh, Paul Nurse, was, who, who of course got the, got the Nobel Prize for his uh, bioscience research. But Paul, when you saw him in his offices at the Royal Society in London, he had got in his, uh, on the balcony of his flat quite a sophisticated little telescope. And he said to me, astronomy and space was what had first interested him in science, even though he then became, of course, a, a fantastic life scientist. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great step for many people into science. Mm. And you mentioned launch. Obviously, there's several potential launch sites, all at varying degrees of readiness. What is the government's view on this? How is the regulatory framework coming about? Well, of course, I'm I'm not a member of the government. I've been in the government for uh, seven years now, so um, I'm not a spokesman for the government and not privy to everything that they're planning. But they they have they have got a a legal framework with the Space Industry Act, which is a good thing. There are some issues, and they're trying to create the right regulatory regime, and there's a there's a process of consultation underway. I personally think it's, it's, you know, it is important we make the regulatory regime as flexible as possible. And the, the, the CAA, which has ended up as the regulator here, understands airlines and uh, airports. I hope it, it also understands that space launch is a bit different. And, you know, what we do at Skyrora doesn't, is so flexible. You don't even need a permanent, big, concrete space launched installation. So, yeah, I hope what we have to do is have a regulatory regime that supports the distinctive strength of British space, which is it's flexible, it's nimble, it's relatively low cost. Because it doesn't have a massive budget and a massive amount of power, it does things uh, nimbly and cost effectively. And I hope a regulatory regime reinforces that. Yeah, I think we all do. Yeah. And hopefully it's going to go in that direction. And there is this top line strategy of capturing 10% of the global space market by 2030. You are obviously the expert. Do you think that's possible? I think it is possible. And I think the arrival of, of OneWeb really boosts our chances because we've got a, an opportunity to be the sort of shaping one of the main LEO constellations. Uh, so that's a uh, with a supply capacity to match. And we've always been strong in the downstream, you know, in using satellites for communications, in analyzing data from satellites. So one of the other things I was able to do as minister was create the next network of catapults, catapult centers. And of course, at Harwell, there's the, the, the satellite applications catapult, 
which has really been promoting the use of data. And so if we look ahead to COP26 in Glasgow later this year, I think I'm increasingly optimistic that a strand of work at Glasgow will be how can we now use satellite capabilities both to monitor climate change uh, and also to measure the performance of individual countries against their pledges on climate change. And there's already been some satellite monitoring, but one thing I'm pressing for at the moment, hope we'll achieve, is a, is a much more bold and systematic attempt to harness space for the purpose of, of monitoring climate change. And so there's a, there's a lot going on. And again, Britain can play a lead in that. Absolutely. And I'm so sorry that Murray can't be on this call because that's his real passion point is, <laughs> is monitoring deforestation, obviously using satellites and his company's doing some wonderful work there. And, and it's also cutting edge. I find it so exciting. I actually don't understand half of what Murray says, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> He's a very clever man. Um, but that must be another element of space that, that makes you quite excited about the potential. Yes, and, and Earth observation. And again, one of my frustrations, and I think it's got a lot better now, was there was... Um, there was always the kind of the, the media critique of the aid budget was it's ludicrous that we're still giving aid to India when they've got a space program. The belief that <laughs> some kind of luxury when actually developing countries that don't have conventional infrastructure often need a space infrastructure more. And um, I can still remember a conversation with an Indian minister who said to me, who was responsible for education, and he said he had a large capital budget to fund the building of schools across India. The only way he could check whether the school had actually been built as promised, where promised, was to ask for the coordinates of the school and then get a satellite image to check that there was a school there. That was how he <laughs> monitored his school building program. I went to, the, to an Ariane launch, a rocket launch in, um, from Kourou, and the, the, one of the main purposes of the big satellite that was being launched was to provide broadband coverage for parts of Africa to enable online education programs to be delivered to schools which uh, where they didn't have conventional mobile phone coverage and were hard to access. So there's a lot that satellites and space can do to help developing countries. When there's a natural disaster, often those urgent quick images that enable people to assess the scale of it, what's been damaged, what do they need, those will quite often quite possibly be satellite images going back to the disaster monitoring constellation. Again, a, a British initiative. So if we can have a, a version of the disaster monitoring constellation, but now for monitoring climate change, I think that would be a really good result from Glasgow. Definitely. I hope so too. And I think that would really inspire a lot of people and, and move us forward. So if you could just get your crystal ball out, please, and tell me what you think the big areas are going to be going forward. I mean, are people still obsessed with Mars or do you think climate's overtaken in terms of people's priorities? Well, I, I do think that getting back to the moon and then using the moon as a base for going to Mars, I think that is now a major project. And I used to say, including to my American friends that, you know, it was pretty clear to me the next person on the moon would be a Chinese woman, which yeah. I think is probably still the likelihood. But the Americans, so used to having a sort of complete technological domination, I think it's, well, they've woken up to the fact that um, there's now another serious country with great capabilities. So there's going to be a kind of race. Well, I do, there's a lot of international geopolitics in space, which is also one of the things I got increasingly involved in. And, and for some of these programs, if they can lead to international cooperation, 
Remember, the International Space Station, though it doesn't sadly have China in it, does have Russia in it and was partly seen as, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a great shared project of the US and the, and the, uh, and the Soviet Union, then Russia. I think some way, if it becomes a, a complete zero-sum China US race. I think that would be a pity. I'd be great to see collaboration. And I think how they might be able to collaborate will be one of the interesting geopolitical challenges of the future. I think closer to home, the, the capacities of, of Leo constellations to, to do, well, I mean, partly just to plug in places which don't have proper mobile phone coverage and don't have fiber cables. And there will be, you know, from Dartmoor to the Scottish Highlands, there are places where it's, there's still not a decent internet connection and where LEO satellites are probably going to be able to use it. I think that's going to be very exciting. Um, so yes, there's a, there is a lot happening, probably looking forward, robotic assembly in space, launching a kit and then building it up in space into much larger entities, perhaps even virtual and physical kind of assemblies of small satellites in clusters, uh, space tugs helping with space debris and also doing satellite repairs. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening. Well, fantastic to hear from uh, Lord Willix there. It's an interesting note to have left it on, this idea of tugs and, and space debris. It's certainly something which vexes a lot of people in the space industry and actually civil society more generally, uh, a rapidly evolving problem, but glad to hear rapidly evolving set of solutions as well, because obviously everything that we do in, in space depends upon a sustainable orbit. So uh, we, we do need these technologies to make sure it's, uh, it's, it's operable for the years to come. Well, this is the thing. We're really running the risk of jamming up space with junk so that we can't even get out there in the first place, aren't we? Ironically, yes. At this point where we're suddenly developing these huge new volumes of uh, novel technologies to deploy in space, it all relies upon being able to fly a platform in space and not have it collide with something. Even a very, very small particle can cause catastrophic damage because of the energies and the speed. Yeah, and we're going to look at space debris in a future episode as well and speak to some of the experts who are involved in that technology. We are. We are. Yeah, we're covering everything, aren't we? It's the great British liftoff, so we have to. We have to cover it all. We have to squeeze it all in, absolutely. And it was interesting what David Willett said there about launching the catapults, because all these incubators have become so key to the development of the space sector. So we thought it'd be interesting to talk to someone who actually manages these catapults and these incubation centres. And Delith Lloyd Edwards works for the Science and Technology Facilities Council, who is our co-sponsor for this series. And I asked her to explain what a European Space Agency business incubation centre also known as an ESABIC, does. There's a particular programme that we deliver in partnership with the European Space Agency to deliver a programme in the UK with funding also from the UK Space Agency, where we actually deliver support for companies who are either developing space technology, where they want to sell products and services to the space sector, or they're actually using satellite services from space. If you think about the UK, it's a member state of the European Space Agency. And you know, for those of you who don't know, that's Europe's gateway to space, manages the European Space Programme, funded, uh, funded through its 22 member states. 
and when we think about space, when you talk to people about space, you know, the, the kind of what that comes up in their mind often is rockets, astronauts, spaceships. But actually, you know, what, what this program really is about, you know, when we're working with these startups and these early stage businesses, it's about demonstrating that the use of space assets, or space technology, space services, whatever you want to call them, you know, they have wide ranging and far reaching applications on Earth across sectors from healthcare to agriculture to the energy and the environment, creating decision making tools quite often, like software as a service products. And then that will then, in, you know, in turn, create new business jobs and wealth in the local, regional and, and UK economy. I think it's important to point out that Brexit hasn't affected our relationship with the European Space Agency, has it? No, what we've got to remember is, is that, you know, the European Space Agency is, is an independent organisation and that it's funded directly through its, um, through its member states. The UK representative is the UK Space Agency and, and they, you know, yes, they have their own kind of national space programme, but they then fund activities that I guess that, you know, that, that then comes back into the UK mm -hmm. um, through partnerships. Um, and programs that we run with with the European Space Agency. So no, we, we don't we don't need to worry about Brexit in that context. Like the first time we've not had to worry about Brexit. Good news. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently you've had £86 million worth of equity created by the companies that have gone through your, your incubation. I mean, that's a lot of money, right? Yeah, it, it's, it's a, yeah, it sounds like a, a huge amount of money, especially when we're talking about startups and, and small businesses. But just to sort of, I guess, provide a bit more background and context to that is, is the ESABIC uh, UK, as, as it's now known, it started in sort of, you know, late 2010, early 2011. So, so just over 10 years ago, it's gone from strength to strength. It started at a Harwell campus in Oxfordshire. So only in, in one location and then incubated a, a number of, of businesses, you know, over the years. And in 2018, expanded to the Darsbury site where I work. So which is sort of equidistance between um, Liverpool and Manchester and also to our Edinburgh site, so the Higgs Centre for Innovation that's at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. So then the Isabic Harwell in 2018 became the Isabic UK, and then more recently at the University of Leicester joined, um, so that, that would have been sort of last year, so, so 2020. You know, coming back to that sort of £86 million investment, we provide a lot of intensive support for these companies, so, you know, they go through an assessment process and they're accepted onto the program and they're there really, you know, to, to develop the technology, to develop their idea and their product and, and obviously eventually get, get that to sort of commercialization and, and market entry. One of the things that we help them quite, quite closely with is this investment piece, because anybody, you know, trying to launch a brand new product, you know, there's, there's a lot of time and money that goes into that. But also, you know, you, you can't just sort of do it on your own. Yes, there's, there's grant money that you can um, apply for. But, you know, really to, to, to succeed, quite often you need that kind of private, you know, equity, venture capital, you know, seed, angel investment. But it just goes to show the impact uh, that these in incubation programs do have on, on you know, on, on UK companies. 
Definitely. And I know that, you know, the R&D in the space sector is something like seven times more intensive than any other sector, which you can understand because it's very high level technology. It's often groundbreaking, it often requires, you know, precious metals, etc. A lot of in-depth knowledge. So having that support of the organisation, I imagine, is just invaluable. And also having that kind of specialism as well. So that you, is it fair to say you have like a pool of investors who understand the industry as well? Yes, exactly. So, you know, you've got, you know, like specialist investors that are only interested in potentially, you know, investing in companies within the space sector. You know, it's very niche, it's very specialist, as you say, and by its very nature, it means that you do have to invest a lot of capital to actually sort of, you know, get that product to market. Now, it is different whether it's upstream or downstream because quite often the downstream is where you've got sort of digital products and services. You know, it does seem to be a lot of really good success stories, you know, across the board. And, and it just shows that space does spill into so many different areas, doesn't it? Absolutely. When we bring this next cohort onto the Easterbit UK, then then we will, you know, we'll have reached that kind of number 100. So that and that's just, you know, the Easterbit. Obviously, there are other programmes but it, it just goes to prove that a lot of momentum has been gained over the years. And, and also it, it does prove that, you know, it's got a good reputation. The credibility that I think comes with being on a recognised programme like this as well will help open doors, will help you find investors and connections and contacts as well, whether that's in the UK or, or further afield. It's actually incredible for such a small country, isn't it? Yeah, and I think um, in some ways, I think the space industry, although it's it's growing, it's still like a lot of people like they know each other, you know, they, they will know what companies do in what, where. And so it's quite a close knit community, although I think that that opportunity um, is, is, is developing year on year. Yeah, it's obviously a huge growth area. So the UK government has said it hopes to capture 10% of the global space market by 2030. I think we're sitting at about 6.7% at the moment. So we're almost doubling it in nine years. That seems like quite a tall order, but what would you reckon? I think it's achievable? I think, you know, with, with the investment that's going into programmes like the ESABIC, when you, when you think of the output, you know, we go back to this kind of 86 million, that proves that these companies are growing year on year, that there's more businesses being created in the sector. And as a result, there is, there is jobs growth, you know, growth in, in, in GDP and so on. So I think we're, we are definitely going in the right direction and, and we've got, you know, we've got that ambition and drive. So I, I think it's, it's definitely a realistic possibility. Great to hear from Delith there. You never went through an incubation centre, did you, Murray? Oh, contraire. Oh. Um, I've benefited enormously from the uh, from the startup scene, the support scene that there is here in, in Edinburgh. So I started off with the Royal Society of Edinburgh Enterprise Fellowship. Space intelligence uh, in its earliest days was in the Geovation Accelerator, which is um, over in the registers of Scotland. And we're currently in the Bayes AI Accelerator. So I'd say that it's absolutely essential for companies to have that network of support going from like you know, the early days when you're working out how to do the basics of developing service contracts, employment contracts, and so on. Um, those become actually overwhelmingly more important uh, as, as you grow. The core technology has to, um, has to develop as well. But, the, you know, the, the mechanics of operating a business um, are really, really essential for technical founders to learn. Uh, and 
that's exactly what you can get access to through this network of support. So it's fantastic to see. It's, it's really wonderful to hear about these ESA fix. Well, it sounds like you're streaming ahead. How many staff do you have now? Uh, Space Intelligence is now at, at 10 people, and we're taking on uh, another two PhD students from the Excellent. data lab over the summer. Uh, so a very, very exciting time for the company. Um, very strange to have grown to that level over the uh, the course of the pandemic. Yeah. Very, very exciting. And you do have a wonderful co-founder in Ed Mitchard, so it's not all on you. He is superb. Uh, Ed is a, a fantastic co-founder, a world-class scientist. Pleasure to work with him. The team that we're working with as well, our, our team at Space Intelligence is really, really very technically capable and a superb group of people to work with as well. And that's that's really what's driving the success. And you did have a good, a very good Christmas party as well in a sort of virtual world, which was good fun. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We all we all uh, appeared with televisions for heads where our, <laughs> where our faces appeared. It was it was unusual, but it was like gaming meets drinking meets uh, <laughs> virtual reality. It was great fun. I was it the thing to video call definitely. <laughs> well, listen, we've got loads more planned for. The this series so if you haven't already then please subscribe and huge thank you as always to our sponsors the data-driven innovation program here in edinburgh and the stfc who delith works for which is part of uk research and innovation thanks for listening